So Mark 11, which is where we are today, is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Uh, From this point onwards, things begin to escalate and intensify. It all starts as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, now in a more conspicuous manner. He's, of course, been to this city before, but this time it's not the same game. This is a trigger event. It epitomizes Newton's third law. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. We're going to see how this plays out in the coming weeks, but today we'll begin by looking at the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 11, and here's what we're going to discover in these verses, just to encapsulate the message. Jesus is the king, but he's not like other kings, and he wants to be our king. Jesus is the king, but he's not like other kings, and he wants to be our king. That's what Mark is showing us, so let's give our attention to God's word today, especially since we We'll have no slides. I was been on vacation with my wife this past week, visiting the nieces and nephews, so no time for slides. You're going to have to do it the old-fashioned way. Get out the Bible. It's this stuff made of, called paper, and, uh, or use an app, whatever works for you. If you're dozing, take a swig of coffee or get your neighbor to pinch you, whatever suits your fancy. Jesus is the king. This is what Jesus is intentionally communicating about himself In these verses, and he's doing it in a considered and even confrontational way. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, you'll know this if you've been with us for the last little while, Jesus has been somewhat secret about his identity. When he does miracles or healings, he often says, Don't tell. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. That's what he says. He does not want to be publicized. Why? Because heightened publicity leads to heightened pressure. Pressure on religious and civic authorities to stop Jesus, to nip him in the bud. And that would have meant, of course, the end of Jesus' ministry. But Jesus still had things to say and do. Now, however, things are changing. The shift away from secrecy, what's called the messianic secret, actually begins in chapter 10. Alistair preached on that last week. Jesus is uh, passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem And he walks by a blind man called Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus. What does he cry out? Does he say great teacher? Does he say rabbi? Does he say magic carpenter? Does he say doctor? No, he doesn't say any of those things. He says, son of David. Son of David, have mercy on me. That's what he says. He might as well have said, oh, true and ultimate Messiah and king. Because that's what those words meant in that context. And Jesus doesn't silence him. He doesn't say, shh, because he's about to announce it anyway. That's what he initiates when he reaches Jerusalem. Everything he does when he comes to the the city says, my arrival is the arrival of a king. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9 with me if you've got your Bibles there. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And then many of them spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, in Christian tradition, this is called the triumphal entry. It's a royal procession of sorts. In the ancient world, princes and other auspicious types would broadcast their authority through promenades like this. Roman generals did it. Israel's bygone kings did it. If you read about King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1, he does it. In 2 Kings chapter 9, Prince Jehu does it, and people throw their cloaks on the ground as he walks past, riding. 
Why I'm from in South Carolina, sometimes men do that for women so their shoes won't get muddy. Of course, we can't do that in Rain City because everyone would stay wet. All, all the guys, all the dudes would stay wet all the time. What happens in verses 7, 8, and 9 is kingly activity. Kingly activity. Now, what you need to notice is this. This is the first and only time Jesus is riding. Normally, Jesus is a power walker. He's riding today, right? He's sitting on this donkey as a deliberate departure from the normal practice of walking everywhere, but not today, and he's making a statement. And look back at verse 2. He's not riding a jalopy. The king ain't riding a pre-owned car. The donkey is a cult. Cult, C-O-L-T. Never been ridden before. Fitting for a king. That was the custom at this time. Verse 9 tells us that as Jesus passes by, people shout. They say, Hosanna. Hosanna. That does not mean, yippee, hooray, throw me some candy. Right? It's got a lot more gravitas than that. The language of Hosanna comes right out of Psalm 118. That's a Passover psalm. And at Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, at this very moment when Jesus is writing in, it's Passover. And what's Passover about? It's about waiting for God to rescue and redeem. Hosanna is the language of waiting. It literally means save us now. Save us now. That's what you say to a king or to God or to both, especially if they're the same person. There's a true king here. The Jews called him Messiah. The people are perceiving this. Jesus' kingliness is also divulged in another way. Look at verses 1 through 6. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany and the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead and said, Go into a village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied up on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Then say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at the door outside the street, and they untied it. And someone came and said, Why are you doing this? Why are you untying the colt? And they said what Jesus told them to say, and the person let them go. If there's one quality that applies to the word king, it's control. Kings are people who are in control of things. Stuff happens when they say it. That's what's being communicated here, but not in some sort of magical way. The commentators say that the phrase in verse 3, the Lord has need of it, is not some sort of Jedi incantation. The Lord has need of it. Take the colt, right? That's not what's going on. This is a prearranged password. In other words, Jesus has done some prep and planning. Mark is the only gospel to report the conversation about the donkey. Right? Why does he mention this? What's he up to? I think Mark records these little details to indicate that nothing that happens from this point on is by accident. It's a well-laid plan. No flukes, no fate. The disciples needed to know this. We need to know it, right? Because it's not going to seem like a well-laid plan when Jesus is hanging on a cross four chapters from now. Jesus won't seem like a king then. He won't seem, he won't look like someone who's in control at that moment. But he is. Yes, he is. Everything that happens from now until his resurrection is according to his will and to God's plan, which are the same thing. The disciples need to know this. We need to know it. The way the donkey is procured, these little, this little event, these little details, is a teaching tool. 
Jesus is teaching his disciples that things will happen exactly as he says. Back in chapter 10, verse 33, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested, condemned, executed, then I'll resurrect on the third day. He tells them everything that's going to happen. They hear him, but they don't get it. Jesus knows this. He knows that when his death unfolds, they're going to think that he's lost control, that his mission has failed. But that's not the case. When it comes to Jesus, nothing happens by accident. He's in full control, just like a king. That's what Jesus is conveying through all the events of these verses. This is blatant Messiah self-advertisement. Jesus is coming out. He's going out of his way to make it clear that the true king is here. But while Jesus is the king, he's not a king like other kings. He doesn't fit the typical profile. This is going to be a bit of a surprise to some of those people waving the palm branches and throwing their cloaks. Maybe a surprise to some of us too. Look at verse 10. This is what they say. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. When the people see Jesus riding in as king, they see him as a king like David and like Solomon and like the other kings of Israel and the kings of Babylon and Rome and England. He's just on their side. This is what you call motivated cognition. That's how psychologists put it. When they look at Jesus, they see more of what they want to see than what he actually is. Their vision is blurred. Sometimes mine is too. Of course, Jesus knows this too, which is why at the very moment of his debut as the king, he actually flips the idea of kingship on its head. How does he do this? Two details are telling. First, there's the vehicle. We talked about this earlier, the cult, but there's something more you need to see. In the ancient world, when kings paraded into cities, they did indeed ride animals, but they rode mighty steeds. They rode war horses. They rode thoroughbreds. With Jesus, it's different. Commentator Stanley Hauerwas gives some good light on this. He's someone who's writing and life I admire. This is what he says. He said, Jesus is actually making a satire of triumphal entries. He's riding a little ass. Might as well be on a Great Dane. It's comical. This is how Harawas puts it. Kings and victors in battles did not ride into city on asses, but on fearsome horses. But not this king. He does not and will not triumph through force of arms. Jesus is on a lowly pack animal. That is commanding symbolism. You need to note it. I want to pause here to reflect. What does all this mean? What does it mean about God and what he's up to and about us and how we connect into that? Let me put it like this. Jesus is a king who has arrived to save and to rule. He is the answer to the Hosanna cry, but he's not going to do it by killing and taking power. He's going to do it by losing power and dying on the cross for our sins. This is the great paradox at the heart of the Christian gospel. Christ the king saves in weakness. Here's how po poet Malcolm Geit, Love His Work, puts it, writing about the cross of Christ. On this tree, loss becomes gain. Death opens into birth. Here, wounding heals and fastening makes free. Earth breathes in heaven and heaven roots in earth. And here we see the length and the breadth and the height where love and hatred meet and love stays true, where sin meets grace and darkness turns to light. We see what love can bear and be and do.
How does that land in our lives? It means that we're not saved through our strength, but rather through weakness. Jesus doesn't come in as a strong Savior and say, watch me, do likewise. He doesn't say, look how strong I am. Look at my power and my morality. Now go and do likewise, and you too shall be saved. That's not what he says. That's not the Jesus of the Bible, but it may be the Jesus of some of our skewed imaginations. That's not how Jesus operates. That would be salvation only for the strong. And salvation for the strong, well, it's just not going to work for the vast majority of people, really anybody. But salvation by weakness means anybody and everybody can be saved because all you have to do is give up, die to self, and ask for help so that I can receive divine grace in spite of all my failures and my flaws and my shame and the desperate violence that subtly plays out in my life as I prove to myself that I matter. You just got to admit you're weak. Anyone can be saved. And this may be news for some of you. Perhaps you have an impression about Christianity. I'm not challenging it, that you have it at least. You have a very different impression of Christianity, whatever it may be, wherever it came from. Maybe it's time to let it go and start listening to Jesus himself. I think that's no less than what Jesus is asking his first disciples to do through all the events of Mark 11. See, they're confused, just like some of us. Jesus knew how they thought about things. They wanted a Jewish king, a Messiah, who could toss the Romans back to the Apennine Peninsula where they came from. They thought the Romans were ruining the world. They wanted God to judge the Romans. That's what they thought was needed for salvation. Boy, were they wrong. What they actually needed is someone to come down and bear judgment for them because they are the ones ruining the world. We're all part of that, every human. We all need pardon. Jesus knows this. That's why he's a different kind of king, the kind of king that we need. Jesus is not like other kings. This point comes out again in verse 7, though it's a bit subtle and easy to miss. Pardon me, I meant verse 11. Let's read that verse. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went to the temple, and he looked around, saw everything, and as it was late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's a bit anticlimactic, but it's actually brimming with significance. The temple... Some of you know this was the heart of Israel's religious life, the core symbol of its national identity. It was the place where God's presence, what's called the Shekinah glory of God, was seen to dwell. And you better believe you needed welding glasses to be in the presence of that because it would blind you. Yet at the time of Jesus, at this point in history, the spiritual reality of God's presence in the temple was, to say the least, past tense. Past tense. How do we know that? We know it from Ezekiel chapter 11 in the Old Testament. In that chapter, you read about the presence and the glory of God leaving the temple, leaving the city of Jerusalem. God withdraws. And when God does this, according to Ezekiel, his presence is literally said to retreat up over the mountains on the east side of the city. Pay attention to those details. Guess what? That's the Mount of Olives. East side of the city. That's the mount over which Jesus comes. He pops back over that mountain when he comes back right here in Mark chapter 11. Pops over the mountain, does the procession right into the temple. The presence of God has returned in the flesh. The, the first and ultimate king of Israel is back. It all culminates at the temple. Now in this situation, a from typical Israelite king, this is what they would have done. They walk in, they go to the temple, they dismount, and they take charge. 
They introduce reforms. They throw all the foreigners out. They depoliticize it. That's what a lot of Jewish people at this time wanted. That's what another guy called Simon Maccabees did exactly 200 years before when he walked into the city, went to the temple. He cleaned it out, cleaned it up. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do? Look at verse 11 again. He just looks around at everything. Now, he's been to this spot before, right? He knows where everything is. This is not a reconnaissance mission. Jesus doesn't have plans for short-term reforms to the temple either, right? This is a farewell gesture. Bye-bye. The Greek word translated for looking around means to take a commanding survey of the situation. One commentator describes what's going on like this. It is a last survey around before something gets demolished, which is exactly what happens to the temple about three or four decades later. Jesus lands, he looks, and he leaves. It comes down to this. God is back, and the temple is no longer his habitation. In fact, Jesus has come to end all of this. Other kings would try to reform it, to clean it, to prune it. Jesus is going to replace it. He's got something better in mind. What's that? A double C E double S. Access. Access. Let me explain. With regards to the temple in Jerusalem, there's a bit of an irony at play in this whole thing, right? It was a place where people on the one hand came to meet God, but it was also a place of many, many walls and barriers. Come close, but not too close. That's how it worked. Israel's leaders at this time spent a lot of money and energy to keep those walls and barriers in place. If you were a non-Jewish person, you couldn't go closer than 100 meters to the temple. If you were a Jewish woman, you could go there, but not there. If you were a Jewish man, you could move up a bit. If you were a priest or a Levite, you could venture into the foyer of the temple. Only the high priest could go into the inner sanctum, and he could only do that once a year. Access to God was regulated and restricted. No reform to the temple was going to change that. Only God himself could change that, which is exactly what Jesus came to do. That's why he says in John's Gospel, chapter 14, If anyone loves me and keeps my word, my Father will love him, and we will come to him or her and make our home in them. Not in a temple, in you, in you, in me. Boils down to this. The old temple has to go so that we can recognize that we're the new temples, God in us. How's that for access? How's that for access? As the true king, Jesus is God, and therefore he has unlimited access to the eternal bliss of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit existing in harmony and sharing and laughter and beauty forever and ever and ever and past, present, future. But he didn't want to clutch that or hoard it. He wants to share it. That's his glory. Compared to the way that most kings operate, that's a strange glory. Jesus is not like other kings. He doesn't fit the regular categories. His throne is a cross. That's where Mark's leading us. Now, why does Jesus ascend that throne? Why does he go to the cross? So he can be our king. That's what he's after. And so we arrive at the third and final theme. Jesus can, wants to be our king. And let me add something to that. He also wants us to want him to be our king. He wants to be our king, and he wants us to want him to be our king. Why does Jesus want to be our king? 
lot of reasons. One of them is that we need a king. We need a king. That's true for everybody in the Bible, and it's true for everybody in this room today, too. Let me digest this a bit for you. In the Old Testament, from a certain angle, you can say that the people of Israel go through two stages of existence. The first stage is existence without a king. You read about that in the book of Judges. And if you want to go deeper, talk to Dan. He'll take you deep into it. Right? That's existence without a king. Everyone gets to be their own king and queen. They all do what's right in their own eyes. That's how the book of Judges puts it. Well, guess what? That didn't work out so well. Go read the book of Judges. It's X-rated. It's one horror story after another. Don't read that to your kids at bedtime until they're at least 15. Following that tragic state of affairs, Israel transitions into a second stage of existence. They get some kings. Let's try something different. But in this case, different ain't better. 95% of the time, the princes of Israel prove to be heinously unworthy of their crowns. Oppression, injustice, greed, it all multiplies. We, we surveyed that when we looked at kings this summer in the sermon series, Shadowlands. Two stages, same results. Things go from bad to worse. And when the dust settles, it's painfully clear that a super king is needed, a Messiah, someone who can fix everything that's broken as well as just take care of it. Things are desperate. That's the agony-filled longing at the end of the Old Testament, and it applies to the wider world. I dare say we can relate. On the one hand, we're surrounded right now, today, by leaders, men and women with economic and political power, kings, that let us down week after week. We know what it's like to live under the governance of people who are corrupt and self-serving and incompetent and deceitful and sometimes brutal. Even in the first world, we know about that. They mess things up. They mess us up. They're bad kings. But on the other hand, if we're honest with ourselves, we aren't that much better at operating in the places and spaces where we get to be our own queens and kings where we get to do what's right in our own eyes, right? When we, exercise, when we exercise authority in our own lives in those areas where we have it, we tend to botch things up a lot, right? We bumble from one blunder to the next. I love the letter B. We add pain to our words. We add pain to our world. Some of you are bruised by this right now. We like the idea of being in charge of ourselves, but we're not very good at it. But hey, don't take my word for it. What I'm saying right here is powerfully confirmed by the research of Daniel Gilbert, who runs the Happiness Project at Harvard. And since he's at Harvard, it must be true. <laughs> when it comes to doing life in a way that enhances our happiness, our peace, our well-being, our satisfaction, we get it wrong. I get it wrong. This is how Gilbert puts it. You're wrong to believe that a new car will make you as happy as you imagine. You're wrong to believe that that new kitchen will make you as happy for as long as you imagine. You're wrong to assume that that job failure will be as crushing as you imagine. You're wrong to expect that a death in the family will leave you bereft for year upon year, never ending. You're wrong to even reckon that a cheeseburger you order in a restaurant will definitely hit the spot. That's because when it comes to predicting how we'll feel in the future based on what we do, we're most likely wrong. This is how he summarizes, we humans do not understand what we want, really, and we're not adept at improving our well-being. We're not good at maximizing our utility to use the language of economics. Dear people, we live in a world of bad kings, but they're not just outside of us, we're also on the list ourselves. 
We don't know how to do life in ways that lead to happiness and satisfaction and peace, and so we need a king. We need a true king. Jesus knows this. That's why he wants to be our king. We're ruining ourselves otherwise. The Bible teaches it. Our social sciences are quantifying it, and we all know it from experience if we're honest. Yet it can be different. If Jesus is God, that's what he says about himself, and that's what his resurrection means, then he, he knows how to help us. That's why the prophet Isaiah beautifully calls him Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Prince of Peace. See, Jesus is the one who can restore the harmony and the beauty and the goodness and the glory that were there in the beginning. We can't give those things to ourselves. We can't give them to each other, not, at least not in any way that's consistent and lasting and enduring, but Jesus can. He can enter into the chaos and the trauma and the volatility of your world and mine and bring peace and purpose. This, too, is conveyed by Mark in chapter 11, albeit in a subtle way. Glance at verse 2 once more. The cult that Jesus rides in on is a cult on which no one has ever sat. Do you know what that means? I do. I grew up on a farm, unlike you city slickers. You can't jump on an unbroken animal, an untrained colt, and ride it like that, unless you like rodeos, unless you like your body to be contorted in all sorts of strange ways, because that is what will happen. But not so with Jesus. In the midst of this fanfare, an unbroken colt remains calm under the hand of the Messiah, the one who controls nature and everyone in it. That's how D.A. Carson, a wonderful commentator, puts it. Jesus didn't come to break this animal. Under his hand, nothing but harmony and peace come about. And that's how it will be with us, too. That's why Jesus came. That's why he wants to be our king. But do we want him to be our king? That's the million-dollar question. Jesus knows there's something that we got to know if we're ever going to want him to be our king. See, Jesus wasn't born yesterday. He knows that our generation especially harbors a lot of mistrust towards authority. Can you relate to that? Okay, I'm the only one who mistrusts authority. Okay, well, it's fine. No, maybe it's just for me. The scripture's for me today, right? He knows that when we hear about some big research project, you know, and some big research output, the first question we ask is, who funded it? Jesus knows that, right? Jesus, Jesus knows about our preference for critical biography because we're not going to have the wool pulled over our eyes. He knows that we're all going to go read Ghost at a Watchman because Atticus Finch will be exposed. Social ethicist Christine Paul puts it like this. We live, you and I, we live in a powerful combination of false promises and false speech that lead to a loss of public truthfulness. And as a result, many people... Many people in here probably have become deeply cynical about truthfulness in government and business and civic institutions and, yes, even church. Jesus knows we're paranoid about agendas and egos and subtext. He knows that we're suspicious people, especially towards those with power and especially towards someone who shows up saying, I want to be your king. Jesus knows about this, and he goes to great lengths to overcome it so that we can flourish under his care. See, the New Testament tells us that Jesus came not to, to be served, but to serve. And that he came not to lord his power over us, 
We read about that in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. In other words, there are no hidden agendas here. There's no egotism. There's no ulterior motive. If all of this is true, then Jesus is a king we can trust. And if he's a king we can trust, he's a king we want to be our king. He's a king in whose care we can rest. But hey, talk is cheap. Which is why in the end, Jesus doesn't just say this. He doesn't just talk about it. He demonstrates it. His crown is made of thorns. His throne is a cross. He talks about all that in Mark chapter 10, and he does it in Mark chapter 15. And he did this so that you and I and everybody else in this city, in this province, in this country, in this world can enter into his life and stand under his authority and care and come into his kingdom willingly and gratefully, not with our heels dug in, dragged in. Now, if that doesn't eradicate suspicion and mistrust towards Jesus, then you need to ask yourself why. Maybe there's some stuff inside of you that needs attention. Has anyone else died for you? Has anyone given their life for you? Anyone served your life and your, and your existence in that way and at that cost? The only agenda that Jesus Christ carries is our redemption and restoration, our eternal flourishing. That's his business. That's his glory. So the question is, will you crown him in your heart? Will you look at him and say, Hosanna? Will you let him make your heart and your body his temple? Will you let the, the true king be your king and steer your life and guide you in everything you really need and drive your destiny? Will you welcome him as he draws you into everything that will eternally satisfy you, your truest desires, which, by the way, you probably don't even know what they are right now. He's going to have to teach you that. Everything that Jesus Christ offers is what we would want for ourselves if we knew what God knows. These are the things we'd run after if we saw our life from Jesus' point of view. Can you venture to trust that? Jesus loves you. He's demonstrated that. That demonstrates and makes it easier to follow him. Our once and present and future king has arrived. That's what Mark's indicating. Hosanna. Hosanna.